0: Alright, good morning. It's a little chillier out there today than it was last week. Probably a prelude to many chilly Sundays to come. That's okay, I like the cold. You can always get warm in the cold, but in the heat you can only get down to your skin. You can't peel your skin off to get cooler. So, I've always loved the cold. Alright, open your Bibles this morning. I want to jump right in. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 14 as we continue our study here through this book. Uh, We're approaching this book as if God wrote it for the common man to be understood by the common man. Literally, in agreement with the revelation of the rest of Scripture, and not reserved with some spiritual or mystical interpretation that can only be understood by those who claim to have secret knowledge. This was written to the common man to reveal God's plan and purpose for the ages, not only where the church is concerned, but where the consummation of all things with the nation of Israel and with the initiation or the ushering in of Jesus Christ, His millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. I believe these things were written to us, that we might understand them through the counsel of the rest of Scripture and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a book that requires secret knowledge, and it's not a book full of allegory and special interpretation. But it has to be interpreted in the the light of Scripture. And it has to be interpreted in light of what is said here. So that's how we're approaching this book. And I find when we approach God's Word, literally, in its proper historic context, in its proper relationship to the rest of Scripture, it really isn't that hard to understand. The truth is quite simple. Last week we introduced this message, this last of the messages to the seven churches I wanted to show you all how the place of Laodicea historically was tied to some very specific prophecy uttered by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 11 and how the Bible when it prophesies it doesn't do it in a general sense that can be interpreted in a variety of ways like the so-called prophecies of Nostradamus or the so-called prophecies of the Quran when the Bible puts writes down history before it transpires, it does it with detail. Detailed prophecy and then history and archaeology and circumstance and the way of all things shows the Bible to have been true. We talked about how um, Laodicea, the name, the place in Asia Minor pointed back to specific prophecy in the Old Testament and how if God's prophecy in the book of Daniel could be trusted as it played out in history and as ancient documents and archaeology confirmed, then we can trust the history written ahead of time in the book of Revelation with just as much faith. Today I want to get into the text. We also talked about the relationship of the church at Laodicea to Paul's ministry to the Colossians and how Colossians was written and meant to be read not only at the church in Colossae but at the church in Laodicea as well. And how that... Um, Exhortation by Paul shows and teaches us that the epistles were written to all churches. Not just a specific church, but to all churches. And they are binding and authoritative on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and we should pay them mind. We should pay them mind. Even these messages here in Revelation, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Proves that these are not just letters written to actual historic churches, which they were. Actual historic context, which they were, but they're messages written to churches at all times. Because there are churches that mirror these churches in all places, in all locales, at all times in history. But beyond that, in conjunction with the prophetic spirit of the whole book, because we live on this side of the church age, we can look back and see that these messages are also a prophetic unveiling. Of the church age from the time of Pentecost till Christ comes to rapture His church out and begin to fill His promises to the nation of Israel. Laodicea is that last stage of church history, I believe. We are living in it now. The days of the apostate church, the lukewarm church. The church that precedes the coming of Christ. The church that's lost its testimony in the world and has to be replaced with a different type of witness. Israel, sealed, risen from the dead to go forth and complete the job that was given to the church. We'll see that later in the book. But let's get into the text this morning. Let's just read this letter again. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Laodicea means the rights of the people. It's about the people, not the will of God. Write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold or hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee or vomit thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and I have need of nothing... Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, pay attention here, this is the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of American churchianity. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." Lord, I pray You would open our eyes this morning, open our spiritual eyes to understand Your Word. I pray Your Holy Spirit would speak through to us, Lord. I am but Your humble servant. May Your Word go forth and may it bring a deepened and increased faith in You and Your promises and in Your salvation. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we read this message, we see that unlike messages to the other churches, there is no commendation from Christ. There is no you have this in your favor, as we see with Ephesus, as we saw with Smyrna, even Pergamus and Thyatira, and even Sardis. Not, not so much Sardis, it's a little reference. it's a little uh, clouded there. The Philadelphia, there is no commendation from our Lord. Nothing positive to say. However, neither is there any specific condemnation. After the manner of the other letters where Christ itemizes the specific ways in which the churches had departed from the faith, Christ told Ephesus, I have somewhat against thee. He told Pergamos, I have a few things against thee. Thyatira, I have a few things against thee. Sardis, I have something against thee. But to Laodicea, there is no, I have a few things against me. It's, I have a problem with you as a whole. I have a problem with you as a whole. This is a heart problem at Laodicea that infected all areas of its ministry. All areas. Christ said, I have a problem with you. Not a few things against you, but a problem. It's a serious problem. In many ways, my friends, the sin of the church at Laodicea is all of the previous sins elucidated combined. It's a lukewarm church. It's a state that at worst ought to be transitional from a cold spiritual state to a hot spiritual state. But at the church of Laodicea, that state of lukewarmness wasn't transitional. It was the end. And Christ said, as a result, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You see, a church can have right doctrine. Go look at a lot of these popular churches around America today. Go on their websites. Churches that we know have erred in the way they conduct ministry. Go look on their websites. Read their statements of faith. And you'll find some good, sound, fundamental doctrine articulated in writing. Oh, you can have that, friends, but if you don't apply that doctrine as Christ commands us to apply it, you can have a statement of faith that mirrors the Word of God all day long, but if you don't live it, it means nothing. You can believe this King James Bible all day and you can stand up for it, but if you don't live it, what good is it? What good is it? You can claim to care about missionaries, but if you don't support them and pray for them, what good is it? Your church can claim to love missions and evangelism, but if your pastor's not involved in evangelism, what good is it? Go read the statement of faith this week for Saddleback Community Church, Rick Warren's church in Southern California. Go read it. We know he's an apostate and a false prophet, but go read their statement of faith. You'd be hard-pressed to find a lot in there that would glowingly show him and his church to be apostate. You see, it's the application of doctrine that matters. We must have right doctrine, but we must not just have it. We must live it. We must apply it. That was the problem with the church at Laodicea. That's why Christ is not pinpointing an error. He's generalizing the problem here. Not a few things against you, but the whole spirit of the church. You see, more than any other churches, if we look at Laodicea historically, it was a wealthy place. And the Christians of that church enjoyed that wealth. They had a lot of resources. Resources that other churches did not have. And I can't help but think of what our Lord said in the Gospels, to whom much is given, much is required. Throughout all of history in this church age, our church today, my friends, the Laodicean church in this 21st century, has more resources than the church at any other time in history. You see, we can look at churches like Pergamus and Thyatira, and even Ephesus, and we can be so critical, but do we forget that in those days, there was no printing press? There were only a few entire copies of the Bible even in existence? And what Christians did have was passed around and copied in just a little bit? And we're so critical when every one of us have multiple Bibles on our shelves, gathering dust. We don't only have the printed word, friends. We have technology. We have the internet. We have the iPhones. We can carry a Bible on our phone. And with, with, with just a few buttons, we can search for any Scripture based upon a single word. Do you not realize that the Bible didn't even have chapters or verses until the 15-1600s? Can you imagine studying God's Word in the Dark Ages? Maybe like some of the, the people who would sneak into the churches in Bloody Mary's England, where the Bible was chained to the pulpit and they had to sneak in there at night and open it up and study it, study it without verses. Can you imagine that? And yet we have all the tools. We have all the tools. And yet a profound ignorance of the Bible in the churches reigns supreme. It's sad it's sad. To whom much is given, much is required, and much has been given to us. Not only tools to spread the gospel. Friends, I just sent, praise the Lord by the way, those gospel materials that I sent to Qatar in defiance of US law regarding military APO addresses arrived. I got an email yesterday and this young soldier and his wife promised me they would do their best to get them out. He's probably risking getting in trouble. If you don't remember me sharing there are prohibitions. The U.S. Postal Service says you are not allowed to send religious material that would be offensive to Muslims to military addresses. Unbelievable, that's the world we live in. When the very first commander-in-chief of the U.S. military, George Washington, said you can't rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. So we just sent him anyway, and he received them. Fortunately, people can't read Nepali in Qatar, but there's a lot of Nepalis there. But see, we have the instruments whereby people can go online and search for Nepali Bible on Google and my website comes up and I can have an opportunity to send materials that we've printed in Nepali to a place in the Middle East. Think of the resources we have. All the sermons that can be listened to from godly preachers, some historic sermons that are available with a few taps of the finger. And what do we do with it? It's like information overload. There's no cost at absorbing it. So we take it for granted. To whom much is given, much is required. Let's look at verse 14, the salutation from our Lord. To the angel of the church, does it say at Laodicea or in Laodicea? It says of the Laodiceans. I find this interesting because the other churches, it talks about the church at Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church at Pergamos, at Thyatira, at Sardis. But this is the church, not at Laodicea, but of the Laodiceans. There is a Greek variant here in the text behind the King James Bible It says of the Laodiceans in that Greek and Hebrew text. Some of the modern versions say at Laodicea. And there is a variant in the Greek. Of course, I believe that the text tradition behind the King James and the Texas Receptus and those early English Bibles and all of that that God brought forth out of the Reformation and He's blessed, I believe that is accurate. I believe manuscript evidence demonstrates that. I believe history demonstrates it. I believe the blessing of God demonstrates it. And perhaps this is no big deal. It's a minor variant. But I can't help but think of what might be implied here. The way it shows itself in the Greek, in the textus receptus here, matches the syntax that we find in regard to this same church in Colossians 4. It's the church of the Laodiceans. Paul calls it that. And here we have it again in Revelation chapter 3. But because this is different than the other messages, I can't help but wonder, is this Christ's way of saying to the angel of the so-called church at Laodicea, you say you're a church, but we see later that Christ doesn't see them the way they see themselves. And so is this an interesting way of Christ saying to the so-called church of the Laodiceans, Instead of a church in Laodicea. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. Because when we read this letter, the church was of the people. And Christ is on the outside. So even in the way this is addressed, I wonder if this connotation is coming through. The, church, the so-called church of the Laodiceans. I don't know. I'm not going to build a doctrine on that. But it's interesting to see how even in the address, it's different In the other messages. Christ is described here as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This description is rich, my friends, rich. If we go back and look at the other messages, we see that when these churches are addressed, a certain aspect of Christ, as John saw Him in His vision in chapter 1, is highlighted. If you look at the messages to Ephesus, Pergamus, Thyatira, and Sardis, we see an element of Christ's appearance highlighted in the salutation. And these elements are highlighted in terms of Christ's judgment on the church. When we go to the churches at Smyrna in Philadelphia where Christ had no condemnation, only praise... In the salutation, it's Christ's words from John's vision that are referenced. But here at Laodicea, there's no specific element of Christ's appearance highlighted. There's no specific element of His words highlighted. What I see in this description of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, is a reference to the vision as a whole. You see, the church at Laodicea needed an encounter with the entire Jesus Christ to remind them of revelation they had already received. If you go read the book of Colossians, Colossians was written to the church at Colossae. And then Paul said, you are to take this epistle and make sure it's read to the church at Laodicea. Jesus Christ, who He is, the beginning of the creation of God, it's very specifically declared in the book of Colossians. The Laodiceans should have known this better than anyone else. Because they were the first to receive that clear revelation. And yet they turned from it. They needed an encounter with the whole Christ. Because the Christ they served wasn't, was different than the real Christ. The real Christ was on the outside knocking. Whatever they were serving on, inside wasn't real because the real Christ was outside knocking. So that's why we have a reference to Jesus in a way that calls to remembrance John's entire vision. Christ was speaking to the whole church. The whole Christ speaking to the whole church here. Not not an element of Christ passing judgment on an element of the church like we see in the other letters. Christ is defined here as the Amen. Amen. We talked about this before. Amen is just a way that comes from a Hebrew word that just means be it firm. Be it established. So be it. True. Christ is this. Firm, established truth. Someone look up 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Anthony, will you look that up and read it for us this morning? Matthew, go ahead and look up Revelation 19.11. Daniel, if you'll look up Colossians 1.15-19 and just have it ready when we get there. Anthony, would you read that this morning? 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. For all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yea and amen. Sure, establish. When God says something... When God promises something in Jesus Christ, He means business. When it comes to the blessings of His children, those promises are yea and amen. When it comes to the judgment of the wicked, those promises are yea and amen. When it comes to the restoration and the bringing back of Israel from the dead, those promises are yea and amen. What Christ has here to say to Laodicea is yea and amen. It ought to be taken seriously. Even more so today, because we're living in it. It ought to be taken seriously. Christ is the Amen. What else is He? He is the faithful and true witness. Revelation 19.11 This is Christ when He comes back on that white horse. His second coming at the battle of Armageddon. How is He described here? And I saw a white horse, heaven's open, and him that ride upon it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he does what? Makes war. Is that the Jesus of American churchianity that makes war? Man, people don't want to hear that. Jesus, faithful and true, makes war. Jesus, faithful and true, saves the lost soul from hell. In all of these things he's faithful and true. The faithful and true witness is going to speak to the church. Faithful. He does what He says He's going to do. True. He is the truth. Not like Buddha who says, come to Me and I can show you the pathway to truth. Or I can set you on the course to truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Thy Word is truth. The living Word, the written Word, it's truth. In a sense, it's one and the same. These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. What does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus Christ was the first created thing? No. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses would teach. That Jesus Christ here was the first thing that God created. That He was a created being. The Mormon church would teach this. In fact, the Mormon church teach that Jesus Christ and Satan were the offspring of Elohim and His Spirit Bride. in that when man... Rebelled against God, they had a council. Jesus, Satan, a lot of these spiritual brethren around a table and decided what to do about it. And Satan wanted to destroy all things, and Jesus decided he wanted to redeem man, and so they took a vote. And the council voted for Jesus to come and die on the cross. That's what the Mormon church teaches. And yet people say it's Christian. I read today where, I mean, I read this week an article where a very prominent leader at Fuller Theological Seminary went and sat down with the Mormons at Utah Valley State University and they decided that really we're one and the same. We ought to be working together. What a shame and a disgrace. The only comfort I had of reading that was knowing that me and Ricky and Brother James and Matthew went to Utah Valley State a few weeks ago and the truth was declared that day. They didn't like it, but it was declared. A couple of Muslim students took Bibles that day, praise the Lord. But disgusting. Jesus Christ, however, isn't a created being. He is the beginning of the creation of God. What does that mean? Colossians 1.15-19 defines that for us. Who is it? And His instrumentality. See, the church at Laodicea knew this because they received that letter written to Colossians. They were one of the first churches to receive this. So they're being reminded here of what they were already taught. That Jesus Christ was not a created being. He was the beginning of the creation of God. What does that mean? He was the initiator of the creation of God. That's what the beginning means. He was the uncaused cause. That brought things into existence. Not only the beginning of the creation of God or what set it going, but He's the one that sustains it. It's by Christ that all things are held together and sustained. You see, we forget that God's not just the creator, He's the governor. Men live the day as if there's no creator and as if there's no governor. It's amazing how foolish people are. It's how it's amazing what people call science. It's amazing. But there's a creator. That creator was initiator of all things. It wasn't nothing collapsing on nothing that produced everything. It wasn't dirt plus water plus time results in intelligent living creatures. There was an initiator. The beginning, Jesus Christ. By Him all things were created. It says this very clearly in John. So clearly that the watchtower, the Jehovah's Witnesses, have to change the text to fit their doctrine. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Christ was the beginning of the creation of God. He was the initiator. He was the spark that has to ignite in the automobile before it'll start. You don't have a spark plug in your automobile, it's not going to start. Christ was a spark, the beginning of the creation of God. In Him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. He wasn't the beginning product. He was the beginning force, the initiator. He is Lord over all creation. And the church at Laodicea needed to be reminded of that. In fact, we've got a lot of people in the church today that have bought into the lie that, oh, yeah, I believe in a God. I believe God created the world. I love Jesus, but I believe God used evolution to bring everything into existence. Not understanding that not only is there no observable, testable evidence for the theory of evolution, but not even beginning to understand how that makes Jesus Christ, not only Jesus Christ, a liar, it makes the Bible full of lies. And it means there is no salvation because the Bible says death came by sin. According to evolution, there, you know, death just was from the beginning. But there are people that actually think the two can go together and they can't. Evolution is a dualism. The fittest versus the unfit. Light versus darkness. Good versus evil, if you want to put it that way. But there is no dualism in this creation, friends. There is no good versus evil with the end result in doubt. Isaiah 45.7, I want to read a verse to you today that may challenge your understanding of God, but it is the Word of God. Take it as it's written. God says this, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and I create evil. I create evil, God says. Can you handle that spiritually? Can you handle it? I, the Lord, do all these things. You see, God's above all. Jesus Christ is above all. This is no Jesus versus the devil, and it's a great war, and maybe, maybe we don't know who's going to win. You see, God's above all of that. We see it in the book of Job. The devil could only do what God allowed him to do, Satan could only tempt in a way he was allowed to tempt. He's on the leash. There's no cosmic duality, there's God above all things. Jesus Christ above all things, and below that, and under His governing hand, good battles evil. But the result is not in doubt. There is no doubt. The end of America is certain. There's no doubt about that. The end of man-made kingdoms is certain, just as it was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. You see, a stone cut without hands is going to become a mighty mountain and destroy the kingdoms of man. There's no doubt Even Satan knows his time is short. Satan's smarter than people that call themselves Christian. Even he knows his time is short. But there is no cosmic duality good versus evil. Good versus evil takes place under the governing hand of God. Now I believe that word evil there in Isaiah 45 verse 7 is talking about the fruits of sin. The fruits of sin, judgment, consequences, these are all of God. But folks, God created all things for His purposes. And He's righteous in doing it. And if we can't understand that, then we need to realize that we are the pod, pots. He's the potter. Who are we to say to Him who made us, why have you done this? The whole argument, well, if there's a good God that loves, why would He create hell? That's not even an argument worth having. You're the pot, He's the potter. Give Him glory. It's as simple as that. And that's something the church today doesn't want to do. But God is righteous. And what He does, He does for a higher purpose. And if, the destru- if sin coming into the world and the destruction of the wicked is something whereby God is glorified in his saints, then praise God. Praise God. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He does all things. Praise God. There is no darkness within him. He is light. Within him dwells no darkness. But he created the darkness to manifest the light. What happens when light is turned on in a dark room? Darkness flees. And the light is manifested. If the manifestation of the light requires darkness to be appreciated and understood and to be more clearly seen, bring on that darkness. Maybe we should be praying for that in our own spiritual lives. If, spirit, if dark times of darkness, trial and tribulation open our eyes and, and make us come closer to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Did you have a question? Yeah, you know, I thought it was interesting that that it, instead of saying He created the light, it says He formed it. Mm. He did create light because He is light. Mm. Mm. And I thought it was interesting that that correlated with who God is. He formed the light and then created darkness and then made peace and created evil. Mm. Light didn't need to be created. He was light. That's he true. Light. That's why in the eternal state there is no sun or moon in the eternal kingdom because Christ and God, they are the light. They're the temple and they're the light. I don't profess to understand a profound verse like this in Isaiah 45, 7. I, create it. I don't understand all the intricacies of that. I just know that God gives us what we need to know and we need to trust Him. And He's far beyond anything we could comprehend. And without Him revealing Himself to us, we could never know Him. Even Buddha understood that. Buddha was once asked, and I like to share this on the campuses, How can we get to the Creator? This is written in one of the writings, I think they found it in a temple somewhere in Cambodia, I'm not exactly sure. But Buddha was asked one day, how do we get to the Creator? He said, that's impossible. We can't know Him. We're separated from Him by a great sea of suffering and the unknown. The only way we could ever know the Creator is if He sent a boat and took us to Him. He would have to reveal Himself to Him. Friends, this was written about 500 years before Christ. Sounds like Buddha had more understanding of the truth than a lot of people in church today. The only way we can know God is if He sends a boat and takes us to Him. What did God do 500 years later? He sent a boat. Jesus is the boat. He's the mediator. I'm not claiming that Buddhism is something we need to be studying. I'm just saying that even unregenerate man, when he looks at general revelation, can have an understanding of things. Because God reveals Himself. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. We have the... We have the um, salutation here. The, church was going to have an, the whole church was going to have an encounter with the whole Christ. Now we have the condemnation. The condemnation, verses 15 through 17. I know thy works. Christ says this to every church. I know thy works. Friends, He knows our heart. He knows our motives. He knows yeah. it. We can't hide from Him. Like the prophet Amos said to Israel, if you can climb up to heaven to hide, I'm there. If you dig down to the lowest hell and try to hide from me, I'm there. You can't hide from God. We can't hide our motives and intents from Christ. He knows our works, whether or not they're pure. I know your works. You're neither cold or hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. We read it before. Here again, let me remind you there are no specific sins that are itemized like they are in the other letters. Perhaps this church had a sound statement of faith, but no practical application thereof. Maybe it had a bad worldly application thereof. We look at Christ's words in verse seventeen, and you can't help but think of that. I I think of Cain. Cain knew there was a God. Cain knew that God required a sacrifice. Cain brought an offering to God. His statement of faith was in line. Hey, there's a God. He requires a sacrifice and I need to bring Him an offering. But how did Cain apply that doctrine? He applied it wrongly. You see, God required a blood sacrifice. And Cain wanted to do it His way. You see, today in the churches we say, well, you can't go out and preach open air on the streets. That's not effective. You shouldn't be giving out tracts. That's not effective. You're going to offend someone. Well, that's what God told us to do. He said to go and preach the gospel. How can you do that without words? But no, we want to do it our way. We want to do what we think is effective. You can't be sending gospel tracts to Qatar. You're going to get that soldier in trouble. You're going to break the law. That's the way of Cain. The way of Laodicea. Jude calls it the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the gainsaying of Korah. Trying to come to God. With our, with, with, trying to come to God. Sometimes... Claiming to believe sound doctrine, but applying it on our own terms and not on God's terms. God says He uses the preaching of the gospel to save those that believe. But we want to try everything else in our churches today. Okay, here we have hot, cold, lukewarm. Hot, cold, lukewarm. The common interpretation of this passage is that this is referring to three spiritual states. That can occur in a church or in the individual Christian. A state of spiritual coldness. That is disdain. Apathy, apathy towards the things of God. A lot of times apathy, disdain, and even downright hatred toward the things of God. Spiritual coldness is often a prelude to conversion, believe it or not. Or it is an environment that breeds revival. Just go study History. It was spiritual deadness in the churches that bred great revival and great awakenings in American history. In the Welsh Revival, in the revivals that hit the coast of Newfoundland as recently as the 1960s, during the Civil War. Out of spiritual deadness was an awakening from the dead. A lot of times the people who are most opposed to the preaching of the gospel on these college campuses are ones that are under conviction. And sometimes out of that comes Salvation. We preached at a campus in California several years ago where the homosexual crowd came out in force and they were banging on tables and overturning tables and a girl that was involved in that boasting in being a lesbian not long after that approached some preachers that came to the campus and said, I want you guys to know that the Lord has saved me. I'm a new person. So out of spiritual deadness often comes life. Hot. Fervor for the things of God. on fire for the Lord. Lukewarm. Tepid, claiming to be a Christian, but riding the fence. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. Middle of the road. Three spiritual states. Lukewarm being like the seed that fell in rocky ground or thorny ground in Jesus' parable. Three spiritual states. Well, there are three spiritual states. Cold, dead, alive on fire, and riding the fence. That's true. So is Christ saying here, I would, I would rather you be dead spiritually than to be riding the fence. Is that what he's saying? I think that can be an, uh, 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 that, that's a logical uh, interpretation. Knowing that God brings people from dead to life. Paul was dead to the gospel, and look what happened. The power of Christ manifested itself and he was changed and became one of the greatest missionaries. Aside from Jesus Christ, the world has ever known. So yeah, perhaps Christ is saying in terms of spiritual state, you're better off dead. Because we see elsewhere in the Scriptures, you're better off never having known the truth than from having known it and turned away from it. That's in Peter. Like a dog, to, a dog going back to its own vomit or, or pigs wallowing in the mire. Is the common interpretation here true? Well, Yes. Isaiah 29.13, Mark 7.6, Jesus defines spiritual lukewarmness in terms of a spiritual state. He says, you do honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. God told that to Israel. Jesus spoke it to the people of His day. And by calling them lukewarm, Jesus is saying the same thing to the church at Laodicea in terms of a spiritual state. You honor me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. So many honor Christ with their mouth on Sunday but their heart's far from Him throughout the week. They honor Christ with their mouth in front of other Christians. But when it comes to living, with him, living for Him in tough places, their heart is far from Him. A spiritual state of lukewarmness is what was at Laodicea. It was better for Sardis to be dead than to be lukewarm. Because what did God bring out of the Sardis church in history? Philadelphia, the Great Revival. It was out of that dead ground. It was the spiritual deadness of the churches that drove George Whitfield to the fields. And thousands would come and hear the preaching. And the entire nation at the time, 13 colonies, was turned upside down. So spiritual deadness is a ground in which the Lord can work. That's why I love preaching the gospel on the college campuses on the liberal west Coast. I love going to California. Number one, the liberal states understand free speech. They don't bother you. You can go preach the gospel. It's not like the Bible Belt. It's not like Texas. Don't mess with Texas. Where you're told you can't even carry a Bible on a college campus without being arrested. The good old South Bible Belt. Give me a break. Laugh out loud. But I like preaching in these wicked, dark, liberal parts of the country because you're talking about spiritual deadness. People don't even believe the things you're preaching and they're satisfied to tell you that. It's amazing to see the Spirit work when life is preached to deadness. But then you come back here to the Bible Belt where everybody thinks they're okay. They go to church every Sunday. They think they're a good person. And you try to preach the Gospel on that lukewarm ground. And you're hated for it. It's funny how that works. It's funny how you can go to a Hindu country like Nepal or India and you can stand on the steps of their temples and preach the gospel. And you'll never be disrespected like you are here in the States in Bible Belt America. Never. In fact, you can go to a Muslim country and preach that Muhammad's a dead man. They'll probably kill you. But they'll hear what you have to say first and they'll kill you respectively. They won't make fun of you. It's funny how that works. The church at Laodicea in terms of a spiritual state was not dead like Sardis. It wasn't alive like Philadelphia. It was riding the fence. You're better off dead like Sardis because God brings revival out of deadness. That's what His, He's done throughout all of history in Israel, and the church. So in terms of a spiritual state, I believe that the common interpretation here is correct. It's better to be spiritually dead or spiritually alive than to be lukewarm. But what about in terms of usefulness for God's kingdom? What about in terms of the church's usefulness for God's plan and purpose during the church age? Perhaps cold, hot, lukewarm means something else. And I've been pondering this a lot because I don't see this in the commentaries. The commentaries always talk about this as a reference to spiritual states. But if you look at what Jesus says here in verse 17, it's talking about usefulness. You have all of these resources, but in my eyes you're useless. Wretched, poor, blind, naked. Miserable. And then you look at Laodicea. Laodicea, the city, was situated in a valley in a mountainous region of modern day Turkey. They had an aqueduct... In Laodicea, which actually brought water down from the mountains, cold, cold water from the mountain springs was brought via this aqueduct into the city. The aqueducts were something the Romans introduced that were used to to bring water. They were amazing architectural feats in those days. You can see aqueducts if you go to California even today. It's a way to bring water into the San Joaquin Valley. But there was an aqueduct that brought cold water down from the mountains. It had to travel some distance, but it did bring it to the city. Below the city, at the confluence of the Lycus and the Meander Rivers, there was a hot springs. And from this hot springs, hot water could be carried by the people up to the city. So Jesus was speaking to a specific point in history, a specific geography, a specific church in a specific place. It's amazing how these things tie together. The problem, however, was by the time the cold water via the aqueduct or by the time the hot water via the shoulders of man reached the city from those locations, it was known in both cases to have become lukewarm. The cold water became lukewarm under the beating rays of the sun and the hot water... Taken out of the hot springs, cooled down in an air temperature much colder than the water. So, by the time the water came to Laodicea, whether it came from the mountains or came from the hot springs, it was the same. It was lukewarm, tepid, maybe not useful in the sense it was meant to be useful. Let's think about water here, because the cold, hot, lukewarm is a reference to water. You cannot dismiss that. This is talking about water. Water is useful. We can't live without it, right? Is cold water useful? Or is it dead? That's useful. Proverbs 25.25 says, Like cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. A far country. Cold waters to a thirsty soul. They tell us don't go to far countries and preach Jesus. You might offend them, but the Bible says that's cold water to a thirsty soul. Cold water, you see, quenches. It refreshes those that travel, those that are weary. It's useful. What about hot water? Is it useful? What does it do? What is it? It cleanses, cleanses, purifies. What does it do on a day like today? Soothes, cooks, calms, relieves the sick. When you're sick, you don't want to be chugging ice-cold beverages. Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. What about lukewarm water? Does it quench on a hot day? No, there's nothing more unsatisfying than to be hiking a trail, to be sweating buckets, and your Nalgene bottle's grown lukewarm. Doesn't quench. What about on a cold, icy day? Does lukewarm water soothe? No. It just wants you to, it it has you craving that hot tea more. Lukewarm water doesn't quench, it doesn't soothe. It's useless. Thinking about that analogy, let's look at what Christ says to the church. With that analogy in mind I know thy works, thou art neither cold, you aren't quenching, you're not hot, you're not soothing, you're lukewarm, you're useless. Someone turn to the book of Third John, verses five through seven, and then I want to see, I want to hear Ephesians four eleven through thirteen. So, Nate, would you read Third John five through seven? Ronnie, would you read uh, Ephesians four eleven through thirteen? What does, what is commended concerning the church in Third John? Here we have Gaius, a member of the church John writes to in 3 John, commended because of what type of focus? Who was Gaius focusing his ministry on? It was an outward focus, right? Taking care of traveling preachers. Helping the missionaries along their journey. That they might go forth and preach the gospel. And when we have that focus on missions and on evangelism and help those along that do it, we are fellow helpers to the truth. You see, the church is to have an outward focus. Beyond its four walls. Missions, evangelism, hospitality, something that's gone lost in the church here. Something James preached and exhorted us about. The church is to have an outward focus. When I think of cold water, I think of outward. I think of a journey, a long journey. I think of a traveler. I think of a climber who's weary and needs cold water from a well to refresh his soul. Spiritually speaking, I think of the missionary. I think of the traveling Christians, those that are persecuted, those on the outside, an outward focus. You see, as I see it, the church at Laodicea wasn't cold. They had no care for the things on the outside. Missions, evangelism, hospitality, the persecuted brethren. They were focused on themselves. Ephesians 4, 11-13. And He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for for, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If 3 John 5 through 7 references the outward focus of the church, what does Ephesians 4 reference here? The inward focus of the church. The church what is the church to do? It's to soothe, it's to care for the needs of its own, it's to edify the brethren not appease the lost. It's to minister to the saints, particularly the fatherless and widows. Not to lavish its resources on those that hate God. It's to have an inward focus. Edification, caring for the needs of our own, loving one another, meeting the needs of the brethren, building up the church that it might be conformed to the image of Christ, like hot water. The church is to be like hot water to its own, soothing, cleansing, purifying, building up. It's to be like cold water concerning the fellow brethren, the missionaries, the evangelists, the lost world, like, like cold water to a thirsty soul. It's to have an outward focus and an inward focus. A lukewarm church doesn't have that. A lukewarm church lets the needs of its own fall through the cracks. A lukewarm church... Professes to love missions and evangelism, but it doesn't support the missionaries. Its pastors, its leaders don't do evangelism. They think by putting a smile on your face and saying good day to someone is evangelism. It's lukewarm. Not ministering to its own, not ministering to those without carrying forth the gospel, not ministering to the lost who need the gospel. No outward focus, no inward focus, no focus. Friends, the church in America today has no focus. A lot of big words, a lot of fancy websites. Spread so thin, there can be no focus. You say the megachurch down the road can talk about, talk about having a missions focus. The bottom line is they're in a heap of debt because they wanted to build a huge building. And there's no place, no time for that focus. Spread too thin. So, whether or not Christ is referring to spiritual states here, or to a state of usefulness, both things are true in terms of the full counsel of God's Word. It's better to be dead and not know anything than to know something and turn from it and ride the fence. That's right out of Peter. Christ calls the church to be useful and to not be useful, whether it's, outwardly, whether it's outward usefulness or inward usefulness, is to bring God's judgment, a removal of the testimony. So whatever type of lukewarm we're talking about here, we're being exhorted. We don't need to be riding the fence spiritually. And we don't need to be sitting on God's resources. I think one of the biggest ways the church, in terms of of, of usefulness today, is lukewarm, is it sits on God's resources and does nothing. What does it say here? Because thou sayest. Why were they lukewarm? Because they say, I am rich. I am increased with goods. I have need of nothing. But really, though the worldly riches were there, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Why? Because the worldly riches they had weren't being used to further the kingdom of God. The American church has a lot of worldly wealth compared to the persecuted churches around the world and they do nothing with it. They sit on it. I know churches that have $200,000, $300,000 in the bank. And won't touch it for the missionary. Won't touch it for the evangelist. Won't touch it it to minister the needs of someone in their church. There's always a reason why someone else should do it. That's lukewarm. That's sitting on God's resources and doing nothing. This lukewarmness, whether it's a spiritual state, or whether it's a level of of uselessness, either way, Jesus says, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Blunt, harsh words from the gentle Christ. When I preach on the college campuses, I've highlighted a number of verses in the Gospel of Mark. I like to do an exegetical summation of the book of Mark when I'm preaching on the campus. It usually takes me about 30 to 45 minutes. And I've highlighted some verses beginning with Mark 1 all the way to the end of the chapter. And I want to present a character sketch of Christ that doesn't look anything like people think Jesus was. Everybody today talks about Jesus this and Jesus that and Jesus loves this, Jesus that. It doesn't look anything like the Jesus of the Bible. So I like to preach through these passages that present a different picture of Jesus. Nate's heard the message. They tried to kick me off the campus that particular day, but I finished it instead. Mark 1.15, 138, 217, 35, 329, 610 through 11, 7, 20 through 23, 8, 34 through 38, 9, 42 through 50, 10, 25, 11.24, 17, 11, 24, 13, 13, 13, 22, 16, 15, and 16. Go read that, those verses. Does your Jesus match the Jesus of the Bible? I will spew thee out of my mouth blunt, harsh words from the gentle Christ. Christ had some blunt harsh words in the gospel. Christ has some blunt, harsh words here. Is that the Jesus we submit to or we follow or do we choose to ignore those and create a Jesus in our own mind we have, that serves our own lust and pleasures? Christ is not tolerant. I had somebody tell us on one of the campuses last month, Jesus is tolerant. You're intolerant. Jesus is not tolerant, my friends. The church at Pergamos was Tolerant. Christ rebuked him. He is not tolerant. Anyone that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, is intolerant. That's the pinnacle of intolerance. We are not called to tolerance, friends. We are called to allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cold, hot, lukewarm. Something to think about there. Christ's hard words in verse 16. Verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is a classic case of man's perspective versus God's perspective. Man says, I'm in need of nothing. Laodicea says, I'm in need of nothing. I've got the resources, I've got the fancy building, I've got the paid staff, I've got the great music, I've got the interesting type of outreaches, the youth groups, the tailgate parties, whatever. I don't need anything. I don't even need Christ. But God says you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Why? Because it's blind leading the blind, and both fall into a ditch. What was the church doing? It was sitting on God's resources. That is undoubtedly an element of the lukewarmness Christ is talking about here because it's defined right here in verse 17. Sitting on God's resources. And it meant nothing because the heart was not right. I had a relative that wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation many years ago. It's written from a layman's perspective. It's very interesting. But he notes a statistic in this book from 1968 involving Southern Baptist churches. This is 1968 Southern Baptist churches as a whole Spent $161 million on buildings. Only $120 million on missions. $40 million less on missions than on buildings. Now that's a problem in and of itself, but friends, that's a lot better of a place to be in than the church today. I read some statistics from 2010 said that 97% of offerings given to the church end up being spent to benefit the ones that gave it. 97% is spent to benefit the ones that gave it. Not spent to benefit the needs of the poor brethren in the church, but spent to, you know, what does that obviously mean? Big buildings, fancy programs, things to make the givers feel comfortable and to feel good about their tax deductions. 97%. If that's not sitting on God's resources, I don't know what is. If that's not lukewarm, I don't know what is. When we give, do we give to benefit ourselves? Or do we give that those who have nothing... Or those that don't hear the gospel are benefited. Or the missionary that's willing to go forth and do what we cannot do. Are we given to benefit that ministry for the furtherance of the gospel? Or are we doing it with some other motive? You can be wealthy. You can give all day long. But if your heart's not right, God sees the truth. If you go back and study the book of Daniel, I love how Daniel fits perfectly with Revelation. In fact, you can't really understand one book without the other. Daniel's focus is on the purpose and plan of God for the nation of Israel. Revelation is on the consummation, purpose and plan of God in regard to all things. Israel, the church, and concluded the world. But in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest monarchs of all time, had a vision of a great statue. That statue had a head of gold. It had a uh, breast, shoulders of silver. It had belly and thighs of brass. It had legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay. Great metals, useful metals. It was a great statue. A wondrous thing to look at. Something that stunned him. What did those metals, what did that statue represent? It represented the Gentile world kingdoms that would rise. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Daniel had a vision in chapter 7 in which he saw out of this great raging sea four hideous beasts came up out of the sea. What did those beasts represent? They represented the exact same things that the portions of the statue in chapter 2 represented. Gentile world kingdoms. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But you see, Daniel chapter 7, the four beasts, is how God saw those kingdoms. Hideous beasts. The last one, so terrible and hideous it couldn't be described. It included elements of all the beasts. It's the same thing mentioned in Revelation 13. But from man's perspective, these kingdoms were great. Gold, silver, brass, and iron. You see, God sees things from a different perspective than men because God sees the heart. That's the situation here. From man's perspective, these great kingdoms were like great precious metals. From God's perspective, these same kingdoms were hideous beasts. From man's perspective, the church today is so great, some people even think the church is so great and the gospel spread throughout the world, that we're actually living in the millennium. There are people that, call, that, that believe that. But God doesn't see it as great, He sees, it, sees the same thing very different, with very different eyes. Because what God sees is through spiritual eyes. Go read the accounts of Israel in the Kings and the Chronicles. The books of the Kings talk about the kingdoms not only of Judah, but of the northern kingdom of Israel. And they record some things that the Chronicles don't, and some things are recorded in the Chronicles that the Kings don't record. Chronicles, however, highlight specifically the kingdom of Judah and the Davidic line. It doesn't talk about, it doesn't trace the lines of the kings of the northern kingdom. If you read Kings, when you read Kings, know that Kings is the history of Israel from man's perspective. Judah, Israel, equal. But the Chronicles is that same history from God's perspective. The King of Judah, the line of David, leading toward Messiah. You see, man and God can see things two totally different ways. And that's the problem in the churches today. What is God's perspective of our testimony and ministry? Does it, does it match our perspective? In the days of the Civil War, President Lincoln, in a time when the outcome was unknown and people were growing weary with this war, was approached by a woman who said, Mr. Lincoln, is God on our side in this war? His response was, Ma'am, I, I'm not concerned with whether God is on our side. What concerns me are we on God's side. We ought not be concerned whether God is behind our ministry. As Christians are in this church, what we need to be concerned about is, are we on the side of God's ministry? Does God see us as hideous beasts? Does He see us as worldly? Or are we seen as we are in truth? Truly wealthy. Truly fruit-bearing. Remember Sardis? It had a name that it was living The world saw it as living, but Christ saw it as dead. In the same way, Laodicea saw itself as prosperous. God saw it as miserable. Matthew 7, 21-23. I'm going to finish here in just a moment. Here's a classic case of man's perspective versus God's perspective. And I think it's the indictment against the church at Laodicea. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works, and I will profess unto them I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Friends, we need to seek the Lord. We need to be seen. May He show us how He sees us from His perspective. That we can either continue in the things we are doing or repent and make it right. We should not seek to be self-sufficient as the church at Laodicea. There is no place for self-sufficiency in the Christian life. There is no place for self-control in the the Christian life. I know some Bibles read self-control there in the fruits of the Spirit. I like that word temperance though. Because self-control doesn't come from the self. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit's control, we're just like a city broken down and without walls. We can't control ourselves. We need the Spirit to do it. So we've seen today the salutation. We've seen the uh, condemnation, verses 15 through 17. Talked about man's perspective versus God's perspective. Verse... 18. In light of these things, Christ offers his counsel. In verse 18, we have counsel from the Lord. We've had salutation, condemnation. Now it's time for counsel. Now here's a touch of irony here. Christ says, I counsel thee. Christ doesn't command here he offers advice. Now isn't that ironic? Because his condemnation is very serious. It's very pointed. It exceeds what has been said about the other churches. But, instead of commanding them, he offers advice. A touch of irony. Why? Could it be because Christ, even in uttering these words doesn't take the church of Laodicea seriously and knows that most won't even heed this advice but would continue riding the fence. Is that why it's just advice? I think of that because oftentimes when we're preaching on college campuses and there's no evidence that the Holy Spirit is working, there's no evidence that anyone even cares, we decide it's time to pack up and leave. And I never do that without first offering advice. And oftentimes when we realize that we're quote-unquote wasting our time, never wasting time when the Gospels preached, but when it seems like the Spirit's doing nothing, I'll soften my tone and I'll offer advice. We'll close with some advice. Look, I don't know how many times I've said it, I'll say it again. You guys are obviously not concerned about the things of God. Fine, we're going to pack up and leave you alone. God's not a beggar. But let, me, let, let, let a street preacher give you a word of advice. If you're going to live for the Lord, I mean, live for the world, and you're going to keep doing your own thing, then let me just give you some advice. Live it up. Have a good time. Party. Enjoy yourself. Because it's all going to end one day. The party in hell has been canceled due to the fire. Or I might say, you know, you guys are not interested. Your blood's on your own heads. Let me give you a bit of advice. Humble yourself before it's too late close the Bible, pack up and leave. See, I'm not taking them seriously when I say these things, but for the sake of God's Word, I say it anyway. Is that what's happening here? Is Christ saying, let me give you some advice, let me give you some counsel, because He knows that most who hear it won't receive it. Well, go and look what happens later on. He turns from addressing the church to addressing individuals. The few. See, He's outside the church not outside the human heart, outside the church, and if any man, if any one person will hear, maybe one, I'll come in and sup with him as opposed to the church. So maybe that's the touch of irony right there. I don't really know. But I find it interesting how it's a little bit different than the way he approaches the other churches. There's got to be a reason for that. Laodicea had a problem. The problem was poverty, blindness, and nakedness. And these were spiritual problems, not physical problems. Poverty, blindness, and nakedness. And so Christ gives them counsel here to address those spiritual problems. He speaks of gold, he speaks of raiment or clothing, and he speaks of eye salve or medicine for the eyes. And I'm going to end with this. What I find amazing is that Laodicea in history as a city was very wealthy. And its wealth came from three main industries. The banking industry. Christ talks about gold. Real gold. It came from the clothing industry. Christ talks about raiment. In fact, Laodicea was known for its production of raven black wool raiment. Christ says, I counsel you to buy me white raiment. Laodicea was also known for its medicine industry. Particularly a type of medicine called tephrophagia. It was a world-famous tablet that you would ground down into powder and you would use for the eye. It was kind of a sovereign overall remedy for weak and ailing eyes. So this stuff happened in Laodicea historically. Obviously, the wealth that came from those industries affected the church because perhaps or undoubtedly the members of that church were involved in those industries and therefore wealthy. And the church had wealth and it sat on it and it did nothing meaningful in terms of the Scriptures with it. And so they thought they were in need of nothing, but Christ says, you're you're, 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 you're naked and blind. You're poor. You, you, you boast in your, your gold and your raiment and your medicine, but let's talk about real gold, real raiment, real medicine. Spiritual gold, spiritual raiment, spiritual medicine. And that's where He goes with His counsel. And so this week, I want you guys to think about spiritual gold. What is spiritual raiment? The Bible talks about the saints in Revelation having white raiment. What is that white raiment? It's the righteousness of the saints. What's the righteousness of the saints? It's the righteousness of God. How do we have the righteousness of God? We'll talk about that. Think about spiritual medicine. What is spiritual eye salve? I think the answer is easy. Let's just think about that this week. And we'll talk about this council more specifically and we'll wrap up our discussion of the church of Revelation next week. Jesus Christ says to this church, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. be zealous therefore and repent. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Is Jesus saying that to us, to me this week? If so, let's be zealous and repent. And let's grow closer to Him. I'm going to go ahead and pray over the food. Wow, I'm two minutes over my normal time. Sorry about that. But I really wanted to finish this up so we could move on. We've been in the messages to the seven churches for a while now. But we're living in the church age. These are written to us. And why are they never preached from? These are red letters, just like the red letters in the Sermon on the Mount. But I hope you've been blessed and encouraged and we'll finish up these letters to the seven churches next week. Let's pray over the meal, and then let's enjoy some time of fellowship. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word. It stands true. Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. Lord, I don't profess to know every detail. I don't profess to know and understand every word. I know there can be no understanding without the illumination of Your Spirit. Father, I trust that the Word as it preached today was in agreement with Your counsel, was in agreement with the entire Word, Lord. And I pray You would take what was spoken by Your Holy Spirit and that You would prune us, Lord, help us to draw closer to You. Lord, forgive us for lukewarmness as a spiritual state. Forgive us for lukewarmness in terms of inaction and not using what You've given to us for the benefit of others. Lord, help us to be like that church at Philadelphia, not Laodicea, at Philadelphia that was not ashamed of Christ's name, was not ashamed of His Word and took it forth. Lord, we long for the day when You come and redeem us from this troubled world when you come and take your church home. Until that day, Lord, in these troublesome times, may we be steadfast. Lord, not afraid of evil tidings, but trusting in you. Lord, be with those that are not among us. Lord, we lift up our suffering, our poor and suffering and persecuted brethren around the world that you'll strengthen them on this Lord's day. May this food you've prepared for us be nourishing and strengthening for our bodies. And Lord, bless our fellowship together. Thank you that we can still meet within the, even the walls of this home freely without persecution in Jesus name amen